outfits one day. They're going to work it out so that we don't even get a microphone here in the studio. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Bring it up there, big Charles. Have they turned the transmitter on? It's the second time this month. Cheap jack. Oh, are we on the air? Oh, hello, everybody out there. It's certainly good to see all of you. Idiots. Knaves. Boobs. Won't make any difference. We're on old AM. When is the cosmic switch come? You know what they call AM, don't you, in the business? Antique modulation. The antiquarians medium. That's really what they do. That's what they call it, you know. On handbag. Hey, uh, would you please... Yeah, yeah, no, no, Lee. Would you run down there quickly, and you'll find on my desk, if you will... No, don't, don't, look, don't look bugged. You listen. Now, down there on the desk, there is a piece about Philadelphia and its Fourth of July fiasco. You'll find it also there with a picture about it. Hurry, scoot. No, I missed the Fourth One of the great things about the Fourth of July is that nobody ever listens to the radio. And you can come on, you can do stuff you can't do any other time of the year. There are two, there are two holidays. Yeah, oh yes, no, believe me. That the minute you start getting people listening to you, in any form, when you start writing, you start doing tap dances, or you become a politician, then you have to play upon the chords of human compassion and human fantasy. Well, you do, yes, sir. Uh, you have to start saying everything's going to be all right in one way, shape, or form, or another. And that one of the things I like about being on the air on Christmas or on New Year's or particularly really big holidays when everybody goes vaguely ape and doesn't show up and they, everything shuts off, the world stops. Do you know the holiday concept itself is fascinating? I mean, just the idea of a holiday, that they find the holiday concept is a thing which is very operative among the most primitive of tribes. And as a matter of fact, the more primitive the tribe, the more holidays it generally has. You know this? Yeah, think about it for a minute. Oh, some tribes have been on a holiday since late in the Third Ice Age. And uh, they find every day to celebrate something, you know, a big celebration. Celebrate the time the branch fell on Og. The great, you know, tribal chief, and they celebrate that. Then they celebrate the time somebody picked the branch up off of Og. And that's called the branch removal day. And they celebrate that by eating drumsticks or beating on their wives' heads or something. There's all kinds of ritual. You know, rituals are very important. And, and uh, since the 4th of July is a big holiday for us, that's why I like being on the radio the 4th, because nobody hears you. You can say all kinds of stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll warrant, I'll guarantee you that there isn't one out of 500 people listening tonight who heard our show last night or even knew it was on 
or even knew that radio continued, which is great, fantastic, fantastic, which which uh, I, I I enjoyed. As a matter of fact, uh, that's also the uh, the value of being on late at night too. Uh, one of the good things about being there's a myth in among radio that people only listen in the morning <laughs> when these dynamic, hard-hitting guys so relentlessly and fearlessly give you the time. And they never chicken out about the weather. They come out real truthfully about it. They just lay it out. It's truthful, dynamic, hard-hitting radio. Of course, late at night, you can just go on and on. Uh, in fact, I remember this uh, discovering this principle one time. Have you noticed that there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a, a two-pronged, how shall I put it, a double standard would be a better way to put it, a, a two-pronged morality that has to do with a, be careful. That's a loaded word. I, I understand that they're planning a uh, a remake of the ten, you know, the, the ten commandments, and of course it's in keeping with the new drive-in philosophy, which you have to watch a movie through the rain and through a lot of beer cans and stuff all the time, and so yeah, they're tailoring movies now to drive-ins. They're no longer tailoring them to, to theaters. Has it occurred to you that most of the movies now that, that are really making it big are really reworkings of old Walt Disney cartoon plots? No, seriously, think about it for a minute. No, I'm very serious. That the cartoon plot of, uh, let's say, uh, Mickey Mouse, or even say, uh, what was the name of that rabbit that all, uh, was always in the, in the movies? You remember that great rabbit that made, made the scene big? Yeah, Bugs Bunny, that's it. He was a fantastic movie star. He was up for an Oscar, you know, twice. But, you know, politics, and there's a lot of racial uh, biases against rabbits. And, uh, oh, yeah, chipmunks go further than rabbits do in a lot of ways. However, uh, you, you recall those, those fantastic plots of Bugs Bunny, or there was a raven, too, that was always sitting around on a branch and hollering at people. Do you remember that one? Two ravens, actually, I think it was. Uh, yeah, these are all great uh, favorites of my my formative years when I formed my concept of plot structure and storytelling. And uh, tension, you got to build tension into a story. You know, the, the forces, two forces are approaching one another relentlessly. Evil and good, you see, are coming together there. And the drama consists of which will win. Now, we know which one will win, of course. But it's how he wins. Yes, I understand. I see that. That's why I'm doing this special program tonight. It's how he wins that makes all the difference in the world. Now, uh, I, I'm sitting there watching this fantastically awful movie scene. And these guys are running around. They're jumping in and out of cars and flying out of windows. And, you know, the whole scene, uh, the, the, they're shooting each other, hitting each other with, with uh, pig bladders and stuff. And the chicks are involved. And, I, and I'm, I'm being nagged by a sense of recurring familiarity. I have seen this before. And yet it's a dynamic, hard-hitting picture that hasn't even been released yet. Now, I, I can't have possibly have seen it before. And about the third or fourth reel, and I find that, that in general, the more that the uh, film people are working the cute shtick, you know, there's a new business called the cute shtick, in which practically everything is a takeoff on something else. Well, the trouble is that when you have seen the third takeoff, and takeoffs begin to be takeoffs on a movie which was a takeoff on another movie, which was originally conceived as a burlesque or a farce, it's getting pretty rarefied. It's like counting the number of angels that danced on the head of Peter Sellers' stick pen. Uh, hey, that's pretty good. Hi, <laughs> George. Philosophical funny there, didn't I? But uh, nevertheless, it gets, gets you know get pretty rarefied, and I find they are tremendous soporifics. 
I find that about the third reel of a James Bond movie, it starts with my left foot. It starts to, yeah, it starts, you know, I feel that little prickly feeling all up and down the feet and the calf and my knee starts going to sleep. Next thing you know, I'm immobile. And the only thing that keeps me going are the licorice, uh, the little uh, root beer babies that I take to movies often. Once in a while I play with them and I line them up on the chair next to me and I talk to them. And, you know, I try to keep up a semblance of human relationship. And it's not very easy when you're watching a James Garner movie. He's painted orange, you know, and he's running around chasing Doris Day, and they're both pretending they're 18, which is not easy to do. I mean, considering, you know, with the problems that are evident on the wide screen, it's very hard to do a lot of these things, and I appreciate that. It's just the way I, the way I appreciate a good tightrope walker. Well, I know it's not easy to do that, you know, 400 feet up in the air, tightrope walking on that thing with the six inches of water in it. It's about as hard as to watch Doris Day playing 18. That's very hard. It's not easy. It's dangerous. You can, the, the thin line between credibility and laughability is a very thin one. And the other night, I'm in a Joseph Levine movie, and they are laughing. I'll tell you, that is a legend, that picture already. <laughs> that ain't the kind that Mr. Levine thought it would be. However, maybe he did. I thought that the Oscar was a gigantic put on the worst movie ever made, uh, but then he topped it. And so you know, you, you, you can never you can never figure tomorrow's disaster, basing it on yesterday's fiasco. That the, it's ever upward. On, has it occurred to you that progress is made even in the bad sense? That that we like to think, you know, of things get better. Well, things things that are worse also get worser. You see, that's a the converse rule. There's a n n Newtonian law. The inverse, for every action, there's a reaction. So for every move forward, there is a giant move backward on another front, you see. And so if you try to make sense of Steve McQueen's acting, you'll understand what I mean. It's not easy. Uh, I'm forever blowing bubbles. Well, however, <laughs> you know, you got, you got to get involved. You got to get involved in this this thing of familiarity. See, and I'm sitting there in this movie, and I got my little root beer babies marching up and down the seat in front of me, and... Uh, once in a while I hear a high-pitched giggle and I recognize that I'm in an in-high-camp uh, evening. I'm in for one of those very good evenings. Oh, that's a high-camp laugh. That means that, you know, you make a, you make a reference to Truffaut or Jonas Mekis. That means you really know what the movies are about. You really know what life is about, beauty and truth and 35 millimeter and all that stuff, you know. And so I'm sitting in the middle of all this, this going on there with my root beer babies and uh, actually, the root beer barrels is what I take with me. I take root beer barrels and I take juju babies. They're two different things. I don't want to confuse any racial issues here. And I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this fiasco in front of me. And, I, and I've, I've been bugged by a sense, a recurring sense of familiarity. And I suddenly realize what it is. Would you please bring that little sad personal tragedy music there, please? Oh, that's magnificent. That is just right. Yes, indeed. Oh, woe is me. I guess. But on the other hand, stop right there. They go into another theme there, which we don't need. That's personal tragedy music. And I'm sitting there. See, I have shelled out $2 and a half for this clinker. And about halfway through the third reel, I realized that I have seen it before. This is the same plot that Bugs Bunny had. In at least 4,000 movies. You know when that big tough dog would show up with the stainless steel teeth? 
and the dog would hit Bugs, and Bugs would fly through the building and make the shape of Bugs Bunny going through the building, you know, like a cookie cut out. You remember that? And then Bugs would go up the steeple and hit the thing and the gong, and the big weight would come down and hit the big dog and all that stuff. Same plot. James Bond. Same scene. And it was always a beautiful cat that he was in love with or something like that. The, uh, Ursula Andress. And exactly the same credibility. I'm serious. The, the, what, I, and I have a theory now that we adults who grew up Digging the most important thing of all that we dug, uh, personally, the, the thing that I really went for all the time when I would go to the movies as a kid was the cartoon. I mean, I really did. That was the big moment when Bugs Bunny would show up. And, uh, you know, the, the, what was the one? There was a, some, some kind of a parrot or something that ran around. Remember that thing with the big red crest? What was his name? Uh, Woody Woodpecker. Uh, 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 yeah, that's right. See, I, I, I got my antecedents correct there. Oh, when my... That's the trouble, you know. That when, when you, you, you can never be an important writer unless you have important symbols to work with. I'm serious. You know, I mean, it was easy to be James Joyce. He had the decline and fall of the British Empire. He had the, he had the decay of Irish life and the struggle against uh, tyranny and the whole thing. What are you going to do when your only your only symbolic antecedent is Bugs Bunny and Woody Woodpecker, and not to mention Johnny Weissmuller, and uh, you know, uh, and that, that was that is that those are the American symbols, you see, and so yeah, you wake up uh, an American at three o'clock in the morning, he's not able to say that's all, folks. It's the only thing he can think of, because he saw it a million times in his life, and it's engraved in his life, it's tattooed on his soul. Well, all right, don't laugh. A hundred and fifty, maybe five hundred years from now, Bugs Bunny could be a classic example of tragedy. I doubt whether much when these guys are sitting around in the in the theater in Athens and they saw Electra show up for the first time. This guy wrote this play, see, and somebody thought it was about Con Ed or something. And uh, they're sitting there, and it comes on. It's Electra. Where do you think they got the word electricity, smart guy? Electricity did come from Electra. And why? Well, if you have ever run into a chick who was anything like Electra, you'll understand why they named electricity after Electra. I'll tell you this. Oh, I've dated a couple of Electras in my time. <laughs> Hi, George Rooney. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of Carmens too. But nevertheless, uh, when you, when you, you know, uh, were these people sitting around in the in the theater there in, in Rome and they saw Electra for the first time? Did they know that it was a classic? No. I mean, you know, they thought Orestes was kind of a weak character. You know, and they thought it was kind of rotten for Euripides to write all this stuff about the queen. But outside of that, it wasn't considered a classic. Everybody went. They bought tickets, first night tickets. It took a long time for us to come come along. You know, so it's a fantastic tragedy. Well, Bugs Bunny could be just as classic 500 years from. They could be running these off, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, philosophy classes. Tells a lot about our time, because this is the stuff that people went ape over, you know, in the uh, in the twentieth century. Sure, you sat there. It was the totally without, totally without any self consciousness. You know, Bugs would come out there and he'd hit somebody in the head. They'd hit him on the head. He'd run around. And you notice in Bugs Bunny, almost invariably evil would triumph over good. It was a watchdog he beat. Remember that. And Bugs was out to steal the carrots. Remember that, friends. So, uh, <laughs> you see, in the serious movies, good one, or what ostensibly passed for good. 
Sure. I mean, in the end, Jimmy Cagney always won if he was a good guy. I mean, if he was playing a bad guy in the movie, he had a black hand and he got plugged. But he got plugged with style in the end, you see. And Spencer Tracy would, would look down and say, well, I'm sorry, Chief. I'm really sorry. And uh, Cagney would die. But we know that good triumph. That was for the adults. Well, the kids would sit there and watch that crummy woodpecker. That was a rotten woodpecker. Did you ever see that woodpecker? Listen, he had a soul that was withered and shriveled. He was a rotten one. And, and I keep remembering that, that the, yeah, it, you, there were a couple of uh, cartoons that never made it because good always triumphed. Mighty Mouse. That was kid stuff. Mighty Mouse. Now, that never made it, you know. Mighty Mouse never made it at all. It only made it when people write camp stories about it. But the stuff that really went over was when Woody Woodpecker would show up on the screen and you knew this crummy little rotten bird, this decadent little bird, this evil bird that was sitting always up and yelling and screaming, hurling obscenities. Well, the way he did it, of course, you'd go, and you didn't know what he was saying, but you could imagine what he was saying. The way about the look in the eye, you know, he'd hurl these things up. He won in the end. Did you notice that? Okay. Speaking of that, oh, that this is WORAM and FM, New York. Hit our, hit our wine spot. After having slaved for years to make a Cinzano vermouth, our people, our beloved people, defeat the purple from jumping on the grapes. They rise across a hide from soaring herbs. Just such Cinzano sweet vermouth would make a nice drink. And the men. To call the nasty names by their Italian neighbors because they let the Frenchmen make a Cinzano drive a moot. But they knew in their bursting hearts that the French grapes were dry. Oh, the toil and the sweat and the purple feet. And for what? For what? After all of that trouble, what do you know about Cinzano? <laughs> That we make ashtrays, Americans. That's some gratitude. Imported by Shefflin and Co. New York. <laughs> I like the purple feet. <laughs> hey, did you hear the story? You know, when, every time I hear this, uh, again, this is part of that that uh, that what they call black humor. I have that kind of mind. I'm afraid. Every time I hear this spot, which is a purple feet, uh, oh, we got the so people say we make the ashtrays. And we got the purple of feet and Trump on the grapes and make it a wine. And I think of that fantastic story that came out of Portugal here about a year ago. How about that guy that was tramping the grapes? And he was 78 years old and he tramps the grapes. And he's, he's got his socks on too, which made it even worse. He's tramping the grapes. And he, he's tramping like mad. It was their biggest harvest in years. And he's trampling in this vat of grapes. And he tramps so hard, he's tramping all this down, all this, all the, you know, the grape juice is going down. With that, he slips and falls into his own grape juice, and he drowns in his own bath. <laughs> 78 years of tramping grapes, and he goes in action. I like that. I like that captain who dies with his boots on. This guy died with his socks on and his feet purple. And six feet of, 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 <laughs> of cheap Portuguese wine. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I, I've got to... I've got to uh, Oh, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of things that go back to our original, uh, our original antecedents. And the they, uh, first, oh yes, they're, they're, why do you think they call the electron electron? They could have called it George, you know. Serious. 
No, hardly anybody knows that, that, the, that the classical Greek tragedies, which, which really were very important to the early days at the time, most of the people who were educated, I'm talking about in the early 19th century, when the uh, Industrial Revolution really got off the ground and got on the stick, you know, and they were working on all kinds of things. The windshield wiper was on its way, and, and the electric can opener, and all these fantastic creations of our day, which really have made life just a one long song. Uh, all this stuff was coming, and those people of that time were people who were schooled. Everybody who went to school in the 19th century was schooled on the classics, definitely. I mean, by the time a guy was six, uh, his early reading, <laughs> really, even, even the primers were written in, in classical form. And by the time a guy was in eighth or ninth grade, he had read Julius Caesar, uh, it, oh yeah, I'm talking about good schools. And and by the time a guy was in what we would call maybe a sophomore or junior in college, uh, he was quite fluent in Greek. And uh, they were they were all hipped on the Greek classics. And so, uh, a a man working in a in a laboratory, when he immediately makes a new discovery, he thinks in terms of the classical world. That's why almost all of the uh, uh, the constellations the uh, the discoveries in astronomy have Greek connotations, uh, have classical connotations. Have you noticed the first thing we do when we discover a new rocket? We don't call it Murphy. No, we don't. We don't call it Elvis. What do we call it, huh? Mercury, that's right. Zeus. Yeah. We got, uh, sure, Nike. These are Greek classical concepts, you know. So uh, all around us, <laughs> all around us, we have, we have uh, the results of the of the uh, of the Greek world, the, the the Greek tragedies and the Greek hardly anybody uh, though incidentally is is uh, I notice is is controlled by Greek comedy. Uh, no, no one would ever think of calling a, a rocket Lysistrata. You know, they just don't. Uh, or or the birds, or the frogs, or you know, out, out of Aristophanes, we we think always in terms of thunderbolts. And so, naturally, the first guy that sat around, he got this jar. Now, how did, how did it work? All right, the guy's got this jar, and he's got this pickle juice in it, see? And, and he's got an old copper spoon in the pickle juice. And he's sitting around, and he says, I wonder why that copper is... Look at it, it's acting funny there. He's talking to his assistant there. He's acting funny. And he's also having trouble with a chick the same time. This is a constant running theme throughout man's existence. After all, you've got to admit that they had a lot of trouble with Electra, and that was a long time ago. That was long before baby Jane Holzer. That was long before contemporary Phyllis Diller types, you know, the loud, frantic woman. The, Electra was the original Phyllis Diller, as a matter of fact. She was actually the original Barbara Streisand, if the truth were out. However, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're sitting around there in the laboratory. It's, it's 1810, and it's a Fred Steinmetz or something. And, and he's, of course, he's got the classical education going, and he's got the pickle jar, and he's got the thing, and he's got the pickle juice, which is composed of vinegar, which is an acetic acid. You understand that I'm, 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 being, I'm being technically correct here. You're following there, Dad? All right, he's got the copper spoon, see, and... Uh, and uh, you know he's looking at this thing, and he's he says it's funny how that copper. Look at it, it's it's getting it's getting funny, Charles. Look at it, it's it's beginning to get green. And somebody says it's oxidizing. He says oxidizing. That hasn't been discovered yet. Does not oxidize in the pickle juice until we discover the whole process of electrolysis. And he says electrolysis. That hasn't been discovered yet. He says oh that's right. Well now let's go back to the start again. 
See, inadvertently, he had made a reference to electra. Electrolysis, electra. The process of electrolyzing. Look it up in your book. It's very good. That's exactly what electra did to the kingdom, you know. She really ionized it. All right? You follow how, they, how it comes about? So the guy says, by George, that's, that reminds me. And look at that. The spoon is falling apart. And he says, there must be something moving between that, uh, I'll, let's call it the anode. Guy says, anode? What does it mean, anode? Well, all right. Anode has a Greek, has a Greek antecedent. Look it up. Okay. He says, well, let's call the one on the right the anode. And let's call it, that's uh, later called plate. Uh, later called expensive by your TV repairman. Uh, and so, <laughs> no, we're getting, uh, I don't know, this is a, a very subjective uh, tour through history and, and science. And so he says, let's call the one on the left, the negative pole. We'll call it the negative pole. He says, why is it negative? He says, well, because it's on the left. Everything on the left is negative. He says, wait a minute, that's a, a political theory which will not come into being until Marx. He says, oh. I said, well, it's on the left, and, and since I'm right-handed, that must be the bad side, so we'll call it the negative side, for want of a better name. So you've got the negative and the positive. The positive is on the right side. Got it? Okay. He said, there must be something going between them two. And his assistant says, those two. He said, oh, that's right. He says, I'm not no longer living in Griffith, Indiana. It's between them, them those two. Them, them two, those two plates, the negative and the positive. He said, I see, but look at it, it's causing the decay of the copper spoon, which you got from a souvenir of the World's Fair of 1802. Says, yes, it is. Huh. I shall call that process electrolysis. He says, why? He says, well, it's knocking everything down. It is, look at it, it's falling apart. See, they didn't discover ions. They didn't know where that stuff was going. Actually, it was going into ionization. It was later floating around in the pickle juice there. And if you drank it, it turned your insides green, I'll tell you that. And sent the old blood cells humming. And uh, they took one look at it and it's falling apart. Now I'm telling you how they decided to name it electrolysis. Okay, please give me some more tragic music. The trouble with me is every time you see nobody believes me, if Clifton Fadiman said it, they'd all nod. And they certainly would. If Walter Cronkite said it, they'd take notes. You're damn right they would. And he'd get an Emmy. Or a Whoopi or a Freddy or something. And what do I get? Nothing but a crummy note from Leader. Get on a stick, you lout. Tell them about AM and FM and how come AM is so great. And how come we're making a big switch and going to rock and roll, huh? Tell them about that. That's what they want to know. That's what those slopeheads want to know. Yes, sir. Get them on the stickeroni. There I am, stuck with my classical concept. On the one side, you have an anode. On the other side, you have a negative pole. And you have ionization going on in between. And poor little Electra. Poor little Electra, misunderstood. Little did they realize that she had a father complex. That was long before they'd even discovered fathers. Freud was 2,000 years in the future. Dr. Spock had not even popped his first platitude in the direction of all those matrons living in Westchester. She was way before her time. She was doomed to disaster. Oh, she was. Go ahead and laugh. You want anybody else out there want to want to have any more? Uh, now that for the for the first time made electricity come alive. You didn't it? 
Okay, the guy the guy grabbed the hold of them two things. He had the wire, one attached to the positive thing there, the anode, the other attached to the negative pole, and pow! He got up, his eyeballs spinning in opposite directions. It's the first time that a guy got a 110-volt jolt right in, right in the ear, you know? He got up staggering around. And the only thing that could remind him of, the only thing that he was reminded of strongly was that fantastic, traumatic situation he had with that chick a year and a half ago. Pure Electra. And from that time on, it was always called electricity. Or hands off, look out. That's what it meant. Do you want to know what... Any, any questions out there, gang? This will, will appear on the exam, by the way. Any smart talk out there? Sitting around picking your ears. This is going to appear on the exam. You want to know what the classical derivation of the word goop is? You ever have a goop? Don't be a goop. You remember the phrase? <laughs> now that's a little deep. That'll be in the next semester. Uh, you know the term "don't be a goop." Do you ever hear of it? Do you want to? Do you want to know the classical definition? Oh, I, I have thousands of these, which I have thought of. I, I sat for a long time. I'm just a little kid. I'm about 14 years old, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out why they call electricity electricity. And I asked my old man. I says, why do they call it electricity? You know, kids ask very basic questions. Adults rarely do. And he looked at me and says, what? I says, how come they call electricity electricity, Dad? How come it's called electricity? He said, well, well because it's, elect it's electric. Because it's electric, see? Electric means el electricity. I said, well, how come they call it electric? He thought. He said, well, because it is. It's electricity. What else are you going to call it? It's electricity comes out of it. That's why they call it electric. I said, but Dad, why do they call it electric? He thought about that for a minute, you know. I said, well, because, uh, because we get it from the electric company. What are you going to call it? It comes to the electric company. They call it electric. Well, so it went round and round. You see, he was not used to thinking in broad terms. Well, that's not exactly true. I, he, he did quite often, and my mother go out of her skull, but that was another story, too. Uh, <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, if you, think of, uh, if you think Vladimir Nabokov can play around with words, listen, I can give him spades and trumps and start from the beginning and beat him by six laps. Of course, in American terms, not Russian terms. However, if... Uh, did somebody just call up and say they were complaining because they don't think Electra has anything to do with electricity? They're out of their mind. They don't know what they're talking about. Where do they think they got it from? Or do they think Electra was named after electricity? That's probably true, you know, most people. Uh, what are you going to do? See, when you, when, you, when, you, when you cut to the core, when you cut to the bone, you are going to have trouble. And I'll tell you who you're going to have trouble with. The academicians. Oh, yeah, uh, invariably. Because the academician is not used to cutting to the core or the bone. He's used to fooling around with the dandruff. <laughs> Actually, is, yeah, you know. I, oh, I, I you know, <laughs> it's, it's quite true. It's a real problem. I mean, that's, the, that's called the dandruff hang-up. Now, I'm talking about dandruff in, the, in, in, in academic terms, where there will be a long, involved discussion, let's say, about the Civil War. A long involved discussion of why Grant went around the left end instead of not going around the right end, why the supplies coming to Appomattox were hung up by, by Lieutenant Colonel Albert W. Wheeler's uh, cavalry, and they go on and on and on and on. 
And, and, and never once do they ever get right down to the core of it. That these guys enjoyed having this war. You know, that's the way it goes. That's the core. So, of course, quite often when you get to the nub of things, you get into some very deep water, like uh, Electra. Let's go back to Electra. Orestes. You notice they, they don't name anything after Orestes? There's no Orestes chewing gum? I don't know if uh, any Orestes effect. No. Why? Well, because he was a nebbish. You know anything about Orestes? He just fooled around. His chick kept saying, go get him, kill him, blow him up. Get your own man. Go on, blow up the king, queen, all oh, kill him. Bring down the kingdom. And he kept saying, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And the next thing you know, he well, in other words, the patsy never wins in this world. So if you want to have something named after you, be rotten. Uh, uh, no, Electra was not the ideal double date. Although, <laughs> come to think of it... <laughs> Anyways, I've sat across a couple of cheeseburgers from chicks that had that look. They had everything but a cruise on their shoulder. You know, you remember that great scene? Euripides Elector, what boots this cruise that I carry? Do you remember that? You don't. Why do I remember it? Well, she comes down out of a mountain, see? If you want to hear about this, and she, uh, this, this electric chick comes down out of this mountain, and she walks up to this well, and uh, she's got this thing on it. It looks like a big jug, see? She's got this jug, she's got this long black gown, kind of ragged, see, and her hair is hanging down. And she looks out at the audience and says, What boots this cruise that I carry? What boots this cruise that I carry? I, brother, across the sea, whither thou and I revengeful. Well, now that's a good scene. I mean, that goes a heck of a lot further than anything Doris Day has done recently. And she stands out there by the shore of that ocean, and she looks across this fantastic Aegean Sea. You see, well, I guess it's the Aegean Sea. It's not Coney Island. And she stands there, and she looks out across the dark, wine-dark, that's it, the wine-dark sea. That's a good phrase. She looks across the wine Every time I hear that shortstop that plays with, with the Phillies, I keep thinking of these classical things, the wine-dark sea. And she looks out across this wine, yeah, it's Bobby Wine, for those of you who don't know anything about what's happening. And, and she stands on the shore, and she looks out across that, that fantastic sea, and she says, Brother, brother, on some far shore. And she's looking out across the sea, saying, This poor Klotz is over there, and he's been uh, fighting the war, you know. You know he's, he's been trying to keep everything together out there on the far front. And she looks across, she says, What, brother, brother, on some far shore, do thou knowest what evil stalketh the land of thy birth? Oh, what boots this cruise that I carry? Oh, and she plunges a dagger into the ground. Oh, boy, what a scene. No wonder they named electricity after that. You cannot name Kokomold after a chick like that. That is not a Yoo-Hoo girl. Not a bit of it. Now, uh, well, uh, uh, many, many people laugh. Uh, for example, now, one, one, of my, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite definitions of, of why word... I, I, I put considerable research into this. Now, 87 million people, I'm sure, at least, drove up to a, a toll gate last night and, and plunked the quarter. And, you know, the little thing says, throw in the quarter. It says, do not miss. It says, do not get out of the car. You know why they tell you don't come out of the, uh, out of the car? You know, you know so the, the basket there? That plastic basket, it's got a target painted on it. You throw the quarter at the target. Now, what happens when you miss that target? It bounces, and there's a ricochet, and it hits you in the eye. It bounces off the top of the Ford and goes down among the grease there. What do you do? There's a sign that says, do not get out of your car. 
Those guys knocked on about $84 per toll booth. Every they just they, There's a guy that's got the grease concession. Did you know that? Just comes along. All the quarters that you can find in the grease are his. And uh, all that's a big new bit. And, and so you throw the corner into the basket. You drive out on the Merritt Parkway. How many people know the, the derivation of the word toll? I mean, how come they call it a toll house? Why not call it a, uh, a uh, bong house? All right. Yeah, why toll? Well, I'm going to tell you why toll. I'm this kid, see. I suddenly realized there's a, oh, it all ties up. There's no question about it. It's, uh, see, I'm, I'm promulgating the, the theory tonight of uh, what call, could be called the universality of the universal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a fine academic uh, uh, non-compass mendus type phrase. Uh, the universality of the universal. It all ties up together. See, I'm a kid. I'm sitting there, and uh, they have built this toll, you know, turnpike not far from my house. The first time, you know, I, I, I couldn't get on the road with my bike. The guy, there's a guy sitting in this little green house. Couldn't get on. And so that afternoon, or maybe two or three afternoons, you got my personal tragedy music there, please, a little personal tragedy music. I'm sitting there, and the... the the heat is coming down, and I can hear the bugs outside, and I can hear the wind whistling through the Venetian blinds in second grade, and I'm reading this, this fable. I'm, I'm reading fable about these Norwegian green guys with the fin that sticks out of their back. And these guys have a fantastic life. They live under the bridges, see? And they've got this green, this green fin that sticks out. They are evil, and they've got webbed feet. And all the travelers that come along to this bridge uh, instantly uh, are set upon by these green guys with the fins. They leap out and they say, fork over, else you shall not cross the toll gate. And you have to lay 50 pieces of ducat silver in that webbed foot. What were they called? Trolls. T-R-O-L-L-S, trolls. How many of you are aware that the modern toll gate comes from the Norwegian troll? of antiquity. That is quite true. And he was green. Have you noticed all them little houses are painted green? They wear green uniforms. And if you look carefully, if you could ever see their backs, they have a vestigial fin in the middle of their shirt. Break down. Now, how many of you knew that? How many of you knew that the troll, that the troll was the antecedent for the modern toll taker? That the troll made his scene by hiding under the bridges, and you'd have to fork over when you passed over the bridge. Did you know that? Of course, you, you know. The troll, yeah. What? I, well, speaking of forking over, uh, we have uh, we've got to pay the piper here. Would you please uh, uh, bring me on some nervous uh, salesman? A little more of that personal music, please. That's it. That's very good. Yes, that's a uh, sales meeting music. They are about to discuss why Shepard not never did get around to the commercials on Tuesday night. And why he is getting to be more of a luxury every day. And not only that, he's getting snotty. Bring it up there. He's making all that dough, you know. So, <laughs> look at that. Me and Hugh Hefner, I'll tell you. Uh, all right, we've got Rover with us, the Rover 2000. If you would like to be among the only few people in your neighborhood who actually impresses the troll as you approach him, uh, drive up to the next troll house you see in a Rover 2000, a magnificent machine, which could very well... Uh, incidentally, do you know that in the early trolls, the, the work with the early trolls, that if you had a certain stature, if you had a certain bearing and a certain quality, the troll would let you go over free. 
Have you noticed some guys get through them things free? You don't think that the state assemblyman of your favorite choice pays, do you, when he arrives? Why do you think he's got that little bronze thing in the front? That's to let the trolls know that he's a big shot. All right? And everybody has to have a badge of rank. And in the early days, if you were the duke or the, you know, a local baron or something, and you arrived in front of those trolls, you didn't just arrive wearing kid tennis shoes. Not at all. That's why you wore ermine around the neck. To let the trolls know who was on the scene. It was like, you know, you'd made it. You went to OCS and you were now an officer and you got in free. Well, uh, a badge of rank today, par excellence, is the Rover 2000. I am not guaranteeing that they'll let you through the Merritt Turnpike or the Merritt Parkway free when you drive up in your Rover 2000 TC, but it could very well occur if you get a sensitive troll working the meter there. So that's a Rover 2000. If you'd like to see a magnificent machine that really makes it all the way, you send us a note here to Rover, and we'll send you the technical specs and all the details. And my name is uh, Spot, and I'll be sure to get uh, all set in there. Now, hold it there. Any got it ready? It's Rover 2000. Now, we've completed our commercials. Uh, any of you interested in uh, in any other derivations of words? I have uh, several others. You know, well... Uh, because I did a lot of studying. You see, I'm, I, when I was a kid, I, I would think to those basic questions that got me nowhere. Actually, it got me a 1015 on this cockamamie radio station, which is no place. Had I accepted the words of my elders, really, had I gone down the straight and narrow, today I would have been Johnny Carson in spades. I'm cuter. A lot cuter. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And I tap dance better. Did you ever see him try to tap dance? you see me tap dance? Listen to Matt back there yelling, because the only thing he, he relates to are tap dancers. Poor Matt. Pretty sad guy. Well, he likes those guys with the, with the aluminum teeth. He also likes guys with the neon smile. You know, they turn on. I'll never forget being backstage one day when Sammy Davis, I was the MC for a show with Sammy Davis, and he was putting in new batteries. And, uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, that big showbiz smile he's got? He was working it up. Yeah, he works it up. It takes him a good ten minutes. You know how Mickey Mantle works up with those big lead bats out there? You ought to see Sammy practicing smiles in front of the, you know, in, the, in front of the thing. He says, watch this one. Hey, there's no business like show business. There's no... I said, wait a minute, Sammy. Let's start from the top. Let's go from the top. There's a little leer coming into it. Okay. There's no business like show business. I said, now we're warming up. Let's go. And now, here he is. That guy you all been waiting for. Here he is. Here he comes out. It's Sammy Davis Jr. da 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 he comes on. Hello, folks. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. That's my friend. <laughs> That's my. He couldn't remember my name, and uh, you know, even with the new batteries. But uh, now, on the other hand, this Electra problem. I, I'm, I'm, I'm bugged by this because somehow I don't relate to Arrestes myself. Uh, have you noticed that they haven't named any major phenomena after Hamlet? Why? Well, yeah. He's, come see, come saw. He asked questions, to be or not to be. So there will never be a Hamlet effect. There will only be Hamlets. Or more omelets. Well, actually, the only, the only thing that... Are you aware that the omelet is, deriv is derived from the word Hamlet? And why? Ham and eggs. Well, you don't think that they... That, which do you think came first? The word ham or Hamlet? Which do you think came first? Do you think in... in in 1597, when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet or was fooling around with the idea that they had something called ham? No, ham was a biblical phrase. 
Pam, we could go into this. We don't want to get all involved. It gets very deep and very, very involved. And it's too late at night. And there's too many other things to do. And I can think of four. So uh, stay in the bullpen there, fella. One day they may call you. And, uh, of course, the problem is that when you get the call, you know, you walk up to the phone there. And it's West Western. He says, all right, it's time to go in. You got the soup all warmed up. And you say, yeah. And 30 seconds later, your first pitch is going over the scoreboard. And you discover that your soup on was warmed up. But it wasn't warmed up to the task that you were called upon to perform. That is tonight's profundity. <laughs> I enjoy that. <laughs> it's a hard life, isn't it, friend? Yes, sir. You say electric call? What are you talking about? The pony. Not the real one. Ask her how she spells it. The real one spelled it with a K. Okay? <laughs> Man. Hey, man, I got my teeth wired for sound. 